There is a bulletin. Hopefully you picked one of those up on the way in. There's an outline you can track along with the message this morning. Uh, we've mentioned this a couple of times. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. That's going to be in the middle of the sermon. We are not going to come by and pass out the elements to you. We've got them on two tables in the back of the room. If you need to make your way back there and pick those up uh, so that you can celebrate with us later, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, this morning, if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We are reading through the New Testament together this year. And we have now come all the way through Matthew, all the way through Mark, all the way through Luke, and we've dipped into the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. This morning we're going to spend one last Sunday in the gospel of Luke, and then next Sunday uh, and this Wednesday as well, we'll jump into John's gospel. I want to say a quick word about the context of Luke 24, just so that we have a sense of the lay of the land and where we're entering the story with this final chapter in Luke's gospel. The story that we are talking about in my Bible is titled, On the Road to Emmaus. So this is a story that took place on the afternoon or the evening of Easter Sunday on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. This is about a seven-mile walk. So for an average adult, this is two to three miles or two to three hours, I should say, of walking. And there are a couple of disciples walking down this road, and then Jesus joins them and has an absolutely fascinating conversation with them. This story, in a unique way, has captured the imagination of people for millennia. There are an incredible number of paintings about this story. Now, understand that there are a lot of paintings about a lot of stories in the Bible. People have been painting biblical scenes and biblical stories for thousands and thousands of years. But there's a lot of paintings. There's a lot of thought that is sort of in the artistic air when it comes to what happens here on the road to Emmaus. And those paintings really fall into one of two categories. The first category is a group of paintings that focus on what happened on the road. While the disciples were walking down the road and Jesus comes and he joins them and they don't know who he is initially and they talk and they walk together. You see there's a mosaic on the top left. You see on the right there's a couple of abstract paintings. Lots of thought amongst artistic people, has gone into this scene. It's a fascinating scene as Jesus walks with these two disciples. The other group of paintings has to do with when they get to Emmaus and they sit down in a home to have a meal. And there's all sorts of paintings that try to capture the moment when these two disciples have their eyes opened and they suddenly realize who Jesus is. And so you'll notice in all of these paintings, there are either three figures or there are three major figures in the composition. And this leads to one of the things that Bible scholars still love to argue and debate about. No one knows the answer to this, but the question is, who is the second disciple? We know that there's three people walking down the road, three that sit down to dinner. Jesus is one of them. One of them we'll read is named Cleopas, C-L-E-O-P-A-S. The other disciple, the second disciple, is not named. And people have argued and speculated and come up with theories about who this second disciple could be. Some scholars suggest that it's Luke. It's Luke, the author of this gospel, and he knew the disciples, and he sort of worked himself into the story in maybe a modest way 
without naming himself. Other people point to a verse in the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. In John 19, we read about a man named Clopas. It's not spelled exactly the same. Cleopas here, Clopas in John 19. And this man, Clopas, has a wife named Mary. And some people say it was Clopas's wife. It was Cleopas slash Clopas and his wife. The honest truth is we don't know. We don't know much about Cleopas. And we certainly don't know who this other walker was in the story. What we do know is the big idea of the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke 19.10 that says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Everything in the Gospel of Luke falls under that umbrella. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is one very important central idea to this passage, and this is what it is. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die. It was necessary. It had to happen. Absolutely necessary. I'll be honest with you, as I prepared this week, I found myself thinking a few years back when we went through the Gospel of Luke. And I would tell you that going through the Gospel of Luke over a long haul as a church, this was one of my favorite passages to preach through and to think through. And I found myself this week thinking to myself, I've preached this passage in its entirety as a whole unit. The passage has not changed. It's the same passage. But I don't want to preach the exact same sermon, but the meaning hasn't changed. The story hasn't changed. And so what we're going to do this morning is just focus on one important truth from this story. There's a lot of things we're going to leave unsaid, but we're going to talk about one important truth from this story, and it's the idea that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die. So take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. The Word of God says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we read this story, such a fascinating account. We read about these disciples whose eyes were kept from seeing Jesus, even as he was in their midst. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would keep us from this danger. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done on our behalf. Only you can open our eyes. Only you can change our hearts. Only you can call the dead out of the graves. So we ask that you would do these things this morning for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You read this story from two perspectives. You can read this story from a divine perspective, and as believers, we would gather together around the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we would say, these words have been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We can approach this story from a divine perspective perspective. And we can say, God, working through the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has inspired these words. God is the author of this story. You can also look at this story from a human perspective. And we can say, Luke, the physician, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, wrote this gospel. That doesn't discount the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke. The Holy Spirit carried Luke along as he wrote these words. But Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in the book of Acts, that he has put work into this. He's put thought into this. He's researched. He's tried to piece all of these things together in an orderly way. He has written some remarkable things in the Gospel of Luke. Earlier in this service, we read the end of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Some people say it's the greatest piece of literary, the greatest literary unit in the gospel of Luke or that's ever been written. I think Luke 24 gives it a run for its money. It's a fascinating piece of storytelling. And we're going to focus on verse 26, but there's a few things I just want you to notice as you try to piece all the odds and ends of this story together. I want you to know the bookends. I want you to see the parallelism at the beginning and at the end. In verse 16, we read that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The tense of the verb there suggests that someone or something outside of these disciples was working on them, in them, through them, so that they didn't recognize 
Jesus. And then that's bookended at the end of the story, verse 31, when it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Again, in verse 31, it's not that they opened their own eyes. It's not that they finally figured it out. It's that their eyes were opened. They were passive and someone else opened their eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is. I don't want you to miss the irony in this story. Cleopas really plays the role of Peter in this story, and he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. And Cleopas says this in verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? And you as the reader understand, yes, he is the only visitor in Jerusalem that has any sort of understanding about what's happened. But Cleopas hasn't put all of these things together yet. There's another interesting verse. We'll put this one up on the screen, Luke 24, 21. Cleopas says, we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped that he was the one to redeem us. You hear the overtones of the Exodus. Moses came and he brought his people out. God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. We had hoped that he was the one. It's a statement of hope lost. But you know the whole story and you understand that he did redeem his people. He didn't redeem them from Roman bondage, but he redeemed them from the bondage to sin and death that had plagued his people for years. I want you to note the details that leave you scratching your head, things that I don't really have a great answer for. There's one in verse 28. As they approach Emmaus, Luke says that Jesus acted as if he were going farther. And I would like to know what that looked like. What did that sound like? Did Jesus try to run away? Did he just keep walking? Did they have to physically restrain him? Not a lot of detail other than that Jesus acted as if he were going farther. And then there's this verse that all the middle school boys are wondering about. How does one vanish from sight? What does that look like? Be honest, it's not just the middle school boys. You'd all like to know. Was there a a poof and a cloud? Was there like a magic curtain that dropped and he was gone? Was there little sprinkly, starry things left behind when he... We just want to know, what did that look like? We're visual people. We'd love to know, what did it look like when he vanished from their side? And then you come to verse 26, which I think is really a central verse in this passage. Jesus is asking the disciples a question We talked about questions a few weeks ago, and one of the things we said is that sometimes a question isn't really a question. Sometimes a question is a statement. This is not a real question. This is a question inviting the disciples to think about something that's true. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? The way grammatically, the way the question is asked, The obvious and the only answer is, yes, it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. And the question that we want to wrestle with this morning is, why was it necessary? What does that mean? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die. Why, in the big picture of the Gospel of Luke, why was it necessary that the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost? In drilling down into this passage specifically, why was it necessary that the Christ should suffer 
and enter into His glory? I want you to see two answers to that question this morning. The first answer will be familiar to you if you've been around Emmanuel for any length of time. It's the truth that God is holy and we are sinful. God is holy and we are sinful. Because those two things are true, and they are, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter His glory. It was necessary that the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost. The great reformer John Calvin wrote a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. At the very beginning of that book, he sums up everything else that follows in the book. It's remembered today as one of the greatest pieces of theological writing that's ever been produced. And Calvin opens the whole thing and he says this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. He goes on and he writes a brilliant two-volume theological tome, but he just sort of sums it up right there nicely in one phrase. Everything you really need to know, all the true and sound wisdom that you need to take from the Word of God boils down to this, who is God and who are you? Most fundamentally, what you need to understand is that God is holy and you are a sinner. Now, it's not the only thing you need to know about God, and it's not the only thing you need to know about yourself. You need to know that the God of the Bible is the creator of all that exists. You need to know that He's good, He's kind, He's loving, He's patient, He's wise, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent. He is a good, just, faithful, righteous judge. But the umbrella that covers all of God's attributes is His holiness. The Bible says it twice, once in the old and once in the new, that God is holy, holy, holy. It's the most important thing that any person needs to know about the one true God. He is a holy God. You're a sinner. It's not the only thing you need to know about yourself. You need to know that human beings are created in the image of God, that human beings have value and dignity and worth because we bear God's image. You need to know that God created male and female. He created marriage as the relationship between man and woman. You need to know that God endowed human beings with potential to do incredible things, absolutely incredible things, because we bear the image of God. But what you really need to know is that human beings have sinned against God. We've fallen short of His glory and we've transgressed His laws. God is holy and we are sinners. Now as you hold those two things together, there's a couple of things that you've got to sort of just try to wrap your theological arms around. Here's the first one. God will not clear the guilty. God will not clear the guilty. The Bible says this in Exodus and in the book of Numbers, word for word. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's all good stuff, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty. We like that first part. We're not so sure about the second part. The first part, you say, sign me up for that. 
I'll sing a song about that. But then without even blinking, without even taking a breath, God says to his people, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. And God's people wrestled with this for a long time. That's a haunting phrase, isn't it? He will by no means clear the guilty. In fourth grade, my teacher was named Miss Redshaw. She was a tough lady. She was a stern lady. And in Miss Redshaw's class, one of the things that we were learning was math facts. And we had a daily competition with our math facts. The competition was based on rows. So every row of desks, every row of students was a team. And it was a very simple competition. Miss Redshaw would hand out the worksheet, math facts. You would have a minute or two or three, whatever, to do all of the math facts on that worksheet. And then we would grade our own paper. Miss Redshaw was not about to say switch with your neighbor. This was honor system. You're big kids. You're in the fourth grade now. Grade your own paper. Mark the right ones this way. Mark the wrong ones that way. So we'd grade our paper. Then we would go row by row, and we would call out our score for her to tally up the row. How many did you get right? Five, four, three, six, seven. And we'd add up the row. And then we'd go to the next row. And we'd go to the next row all the way through the classroom. The row that had the highest score got Jolly Ranchers. That was a big deal in fourth grade. A Jolly Rancher in the middle of math. It didn't get much better than that. Now let me tell you about my math prowess as a fourth grader. I was not good enough at math to make hundreds on all of those quizzes. Wasn't that good. Some of the kids in the class, they just get them all right. I couldn't do that. I was good enough at math to listen to each row, add up their score, and put it on the board, and to listen to my fellow row mates call out their scores, and I could add those numbers on the fly. And I knew we're about to win or we're about to lose, right? That's math for a fourth grader. On a test, you can't get it right. But when candy's on the line, suddenly you're Einstein, crunching the numbers and you know what needs to be done. I remember a day in Miss Redshaw's class, we took the test, we graded the papers, we were calling our scores out. We went row by row calling out our scores. I was in the last seat on the last row. I knew what everyone else had made. And I was listening to Myra work their way back to me. And I was adding it up on the fly. And I was looking at my math sheet. We weren't going to win. So I made a decision that quick. And I lied. And I called out a number bigger than what I had got because I knew if I call that number out, we're going to get a Jolly Rancher. And when I said it, I looked up and I looked Miss Redshaw in the eye and I called that number and she knew I was lying. And I knew that she knew that I was lying. And she knew that I knew that she knew. We all knew. And she, she looked at me and I called out my score and she just looked at me and I thought, well, this is it. And she turned around and she wrote our Rose score up on the board. And we got Jolly Ranchers. 
was the worst Jolly Rancher I've ever put in my mouth. <laughs> Tasted bitter, gross, gritty, terrible. And I thought I got away with it. About an hour later in class, we were doing something else, reading, whatever. She said, Landon, I want you to come up to my desk and I want you to bring your math paper with you. And I knew she's not going to clear the guilty. That's not the way I thought about it in the fourth grade. In the fourth grade, I probably thought, I'm dead meat. But what that translates to in the ESV is, she will by no means clear the guilty. And I knew it. And that sinking feeling that was in my stomach as a fourth grader, making that walk of shame to the front of the room where I knew I'm about to be exposed, my classmates are going to know, my teacher's going to know, my parents are going to find out about this, my life is over. Sinner, God knows. He knows. You may think he doesn't know. You may have everyone else fooled. Your attendance at Emmanuel might be immaculate. Your social media profile may talk about Jesus a lot. You might have a bumper sticker that tells people you're a Christian on the back of your car. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Listen, God knows your sin. And I just want you to hear this phrase. When God is revealing the essence of his character to his people, he says he will by no means clear the guilty. He's holy. He will not simply wink at sin and pretend like it's no big deal. He will not clear the guilty. Connect that with this idea, our sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. I'll let you look at Isaiah on your own. Let me just mention two verses in Isaiah. One is Isaiah 6, where the prophet sees a vision of the Lord in the temple. He's high and he's lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and it's filled with smoke and the thresholds are shaking. And it's an absolutely overwhelming experience as the angels call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And when Isaiah catches a glimpse of that, he immediately looks at himself and says, I'm a dead man. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people with unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He literally describes himself as if he is coming apart at the seams in the presence of the holy God. Then at the end of the book, he circles back to this idea in Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, 1, 2, and 3, the prophet says, God's arm is not so short that he can't save, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God. He's holy, and you're a sinner, and you have separated yourself from him. And it is as if, the prophet says, that he is hiding his eyes so that he doesn't see you and he is closing his ears so that he doesn't hear you. It's because your sins have made a relational separation between you and God. 
This is our fundamental problem as human beings. It's not a lack of opportunity. It's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of inheritance money. It's not a lack of all the things the world says we lack and we're worse off for it. It's that we're sinful people standing before a holy God and He will not clear the guilty. Which is why Jesus told His disciples that He had to suffer. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Literally, in Luke 9, what Jesus says is, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must. It's not just that he would. It's not just that he might. It's that he must suffer many things. Why? Because the one true God is holy and we as human beings are sinful. And the only way for those two things to be reconciled and that problem to be dealt with is if Jesus, God incarnate, would suffer in our place. The innocent would become the guilty so that the guilty could go free as innocents. Another way of saying this biblically is this. Jesus had to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. He had to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Luke 22. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. And Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And if you've read through the Gospel of Luke, you've read the story of Jesus, you know that the Father was not willing to take the cup. Jesus drank the cup. And that idea of a cup is an Old Testament reference to the wrath of God directed towards sinners. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, and he drank this cup. He took the Father's wrath in our place that we might be forgiven. We sing about this all the time in our church. We sing the hymn, In Christ Alone. This is the second verse from that hymn. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This is a Christmas song. We're singing a Christmas song every time we sing this. God became man. He was born as a baby. It was a gift of love and righteousness. He was scorned by the ones that he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He drank the cup. All of it. Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. That idea of substitution, of Jesus taking our place and bearing the Father's wrath is the heart of the gospel and it's the heart of every Christ-centered song that we will ever sing now or for all eternity. And it's the heart of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, this is what we're remembering. The Son of Man had to come seek and save the lost. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter His glory. Why? Because God, the only God with whom we can have anything to do with, is a holy God. And we are not holy. We're sinful people. And the only way for that gulf to be bridged is if Jesus takes the wrath of God that we deserved, and He did. It had to happen. There was no other way for salvation to be accomplished. When we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing this morning is we're saying, God, we believe that you're holy. 
We believe that you are holy, holy, holy. And God, we know that we're sinful people. We fall short of your glory. We transgress your laws. We tell lies in the fourth grade for a silly jolly rancher. We are people of unclean lips and we live amongst people of unclean lips. God, we have a problem in our hearts and it manifests itself in our words and our lives. And what we're saying in the Lord's Supper is we believe, we have faith, that the Lord Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. He died our death. He drank the cup for us so that as sinful people we could be reconciled to a holy God. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've agreed with God about your sin, you've put your faith in what Jesus accomplished for His people on the cross, and you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your elements that you've picked up. We'll start with the bread. You can open that end. We're going to read a scripture from Luke chapter 22, verse 19. The Bible says, On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open the cup. We'll read the very next verse from Luke 22, verse 20. It says, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to remember what Jesus has done. We thank you for his body that bore our sins on the tree. We thank you for his blood that was shed to redeem us. We believe that he was the one to redeem his people. He did it. He brought holy God and sinful people back into a relationship. And we thank you for that. Lord, give us wisdom as we continue to work through this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question is why? Why was it necessary that the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost? Why was it necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter his glory? The first answer is because God is holy and we are sinful. Here's the second answer the scriptures had to be fulfilled. They had to be fulfilled. Look at verse 25 in Luke 24. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's Genesis all the way through Malachi, the last of the minor prophets. With Moses through all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says the same thing in verse 32. Or the disciples say it. The disciples say to each other after Jesus has vanished, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
They're not talking about just a a feeling, a mushy-gushy sort of butterflies in the stomach thing. They're talking about the scriptures, what's written, Moses to the prophets. It all points to Jesus, and Jesus is opening the scriptures to these disciples. Now, here's how we think about this. Here's how we connect all the dots. Number one, God's word cannot be broken. It's just a basic Bible truth that you and I have to believe by faith. God's word cannot be broken. You see this, for example, in Psalm 119.89 that says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You could just say, God, your word is fixed. It's, it's set. But that's not enough to describe the certainty and the assurance of God's word. Forever, now, forever. Eternity past, eternity future. Forever. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word cannot be broken. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. Listen. Following Jesus in the year 2022 in the United States of America will require you to do some countercultural things. That's probably the most countercultural of all of them. To believe that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens forever, and that every word of God proves true. God's word cannot be broken. What a contrast with you and me and our character and our words. What a contrast with a fourth grade kid lying, deceitfully lying about his math facts. What a contrast with a prophet named Isaiah who saw the holiness of God and immediately said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he looked around and he said, we're all people of unclean lips. What a contrast with people who use their tongues to deceive, to gossip, to flatter, to puff themselves up. Our words don't mean much of anything. God's word cannot be broken. It is firmly fixed forever in the heavens and every word of God proves true. Add to that this truth, the Old Testament clearly speaks of the Messiah's death. There's lots of places where you can find this. The most clear place is Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, speaking about the death of the Messiah. It's so clear, it's looking to the future, talking about something in the future as if it's already happened in the past. Why would Isaiah talk about a future thing? Why would he not say it will happen and it's happened, past tense? It's because God's word can't be broken. And so Isaiah says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. It wasn't his will. It was his will to crush the Son Because the iniquity of his people was being placed on him. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. God's word cannot be broken and God's word clearly spoke about the suffering of the Messiah. Which is why Jesus said his death had been written about. That's a technical term 
for Jewish people. Something written like this would be written in God's Word, written in the Scriptures. Luke 18, Jesus told His disciples, everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Everything that the prophets wrote about me, Jesus said, will be accomplished. Why was he so certain? Well, number one, he knew it was the only way for sinful people to be redeemed to a holy God. But number two, he knew that God had said it would happen. And when God says something will happen, it will happen. His word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens, and every one of his words proves true. One more thing I want to share with you, and I want to connect it with everything that we've talked about so far. This is a fascinating part of the story. I know our passage ends in verse 35, Luke 24, 35. Just jump down and look with me a little bit further. Luke 24, verse 45. Jesus is again talking with a group of disciples. And again, he's going to open their minds. It's the same idea as opening their eyes. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written. Circle that phrase. If you like to make notes in your Bible, that's your phrase. Thus it is written. What has been written? Well, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's what we've been talking about. God's Word said that the Messiah would suffer and die and enter into His glory, rise from the dead. That's been written. It's certain to happen. It's sure to happen. It was necessary that it happened because God said it would happen. But that's not the only thing that's been written. Verse 47, And it's been written that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Your witnesses of these things, Jesus said, and I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, talking about the Holy Spirit, stay in the city till you are clothed with power from on high. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Jesus said that God's word and his death would result in our mission. All of these things are connected, and they're all necessary. They all must happen. They all will happen because God has written about them and said these things will happen. And when God says something will happen, it will happen. This is is what I'm saying to you. The gospel message about Jesus will make it to all of the nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all the nations. The question is, do you want to be a part of that or not? God says it is written that it will happen. It will happen. It's necessary that it will happen. Do you want to be a part of that plan or not? Last Sunday night, our family sat down in the living room. We sit down on Sunday evenings. We do family devotion. My Sunday school class uses the gospel project. The kids, the youth use the gospel project. So we talk about the Sunday school lesson. And the lesson last week was Joshua and the battle of Jericho, and the spies that were sent in, and Rahab, and the victory that God's people won because God was fighting for His people. And there's a part of the story where the spies are talking to Rahab. And Rahab says to the spies, everyone in this city knows about your God. We all know. We all know what he did four decades ago in Egypt. 
we all know what he did in bringing you across the Jordan River. Everyone knows. We all know that he has given you this land, Rahab says. And our hearts are melting with fear. She said they all knew the plan. And out of all of those people in Jericho who knew the truth about God and knew what his intentions were for the Hebrew people, out of all of those people that knew the plan, one woman, Rahab, wanted to be part of the plan. Everyone else chose to push back against the plan, to fight against the plan, to resist the plan, to pretend like it wasn't the plan. And Rahab said, oh no, we know the plan. We all know. And Rahab looked at those spies and she said, I want in. I don't want to be on the outside. I want to be on the inside. One of the things we talked about in our family devotion time is that it is always better for you to be on the inside of God's plan than the outside looking in. Here's the plan. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And it was necessary that the Christ suffer and enter into His glory. It was necessary because it was the only way for a holy God and sinful people to be reconciled. And it's necessary because it was written in the Scriptures. Guess what else is written in the Scriptures? That repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations. That's the plan today. Take the good news about Jesus Christ and the call to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. Take it to all of the nations. That's the plan. So the question is, do you want to be involved in the plan? Do you want to be indifferent to the plan? Do you want to pretend like it's not the plan? Do you want to oppose the plan? Look, this is why we talk to you about a world missions offering throughout the year, at the end of the year, all the time, world missions. We're asking you to give so that people can go because that's the plan. This is why Chris Harrington keeps taking people to Kenya. Every year, more people, more teams. We're still going. We're going this year. Guess what? We're going next year. And the year after that. And the year after that. That's the plan. This is why we collect items for Operation Christmas Child and pack these little boxes that don't mean much to you. It's because those boxes go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed to all nations. That's why we send you out from this place to your homes, your neighborhoods, your schools, the places you work, and we send you out to be salt and light. It's because there's people in your life right here in Odessa, Texas that don't know the truth about Jesus. The plan is that you come to this place, you sing about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, and then we send you out to be witnesses about these things. That's the plan. It's necessary that it take place. It's necessary because there is no other way for lost sinners to be reconciled to a holy God but for them to hear about Jesus Christ. And it's necessary because God has said it will happen. And when God says something will happen, it will happen. So with you, without you, with me, without me, with this church, without this church, that's the plan. And it will happen. 
His question is, do you want to be on the inside of what God is doing? Do you want to be part of God's plan? Or do you want to be stuck on the outside looking in?